On today's episode, Return to Running Postpartum with Carrie Pagliano. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, Run Smarter Scholars. You are going to thoroughly enjoy Carrie Pagliano and her knowledge, her passion, her excitement on this topic. We're talking about running guidelines postpartum, um, what the research shows, what the myths are, and practical takeaways you can implement to help your success with returning to running postpartum. Uh, Carrie is a pelvic PT. She specializes in helping women return to running, fitness exercise before and after giving birth. And like I said, she dives a lot into the science. So that's exactly what we cover today. She also has a podcast, The Active Mum Postpartum. And I know I mentioned it at the end of this interview, but I'll say it now. I listened to one of her episodes on The Active Mum Postpartum podcast, and it was myth busting with Rich Willie. I took so much away from that episode. It was a great conversation. So if you haven't listened already, go check that out. This also ties in really well with my previous conversation with Emma Brockwell, who talked about exercise during pregnancy. So if you really enjoyed that one, you'll love this episode. And if you love this episode and haven't listened to Emma, go back and check that one out as well. All the links for Carrie and the fabulous work she does will be in the show notes. Hope you enjoy. Carrie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. For those who aren't familiar with you, would you mind giving an intro and I guess just talk us through your career up until today because it, it sounds quite interesting. Sure. So uh, my name is Carrie Pagliano. I am a physical therapist uh, and I live uh, in the DC metro area in, uh, in the United States. Uh, I've been a pelvic health physical therapist 99% of my career, so probably 22 out of the past 23 years, and that was not the plan. Um, <laughs> I, I I was gonna do uh, I was gonna do spinal cords and strokes and be a good um, neurophysio, and um, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, I there weren't a lot of jobs when I graduated, and so I just sort of took what came and slowly fell into orthopedics, and um, I did that for a little bit and was hired to move to DC to do um, some pelvic floor training. And so I, I sort of did them separately. They, cause you know, 20 years ago, they really were very separate and um, really no rhyme or reason to do the, the pelvic health other than it was just something that, that they needed. Um, I 
have been a runner my entire life. Um, it's something I enjoy. I actually uh, had hip surgery 15 years ago, so back before FAI surgery was cool. Um, <laughs> and so had kind of navigated through that um, myself and then um, really just was doing that separately with pelvic health. And then one day started to realize that there should be a nice mashup between the two that um, instead of just doing straight internal, that there were a lot of, you know, orthopedic techniques and kind of addressing the hip and the back that was really impactful for my pelvic patients. So thought that I knew all there was to know there and worked with a lot of pregnant and postpartum patients and then um, got pregnant myself and uh, really learned that I didn't know anything. <laughs> Wow. Um, and so, I mean, I had planned to have, you know, run through my entire pregnancy and have a perfectly, you know, natural, you know, educated delivery. Um, I even laminated my birth plan, um, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend. Um, my son is 11. He still has not read it yet. Um, I don't know that he ever will. <laughs> um, but had a I had some pubic symphysis pain about 19 weeks, had to stop running, um, got to 41 and a half weeks, needed an induction, three-day induction that ended up in a C-section and um, kind of ended up with a lot of issues that I hadn't planned on. And for somebody that this is your work and you couldn't control things, that's tough, or you couldn't control the outcome, that's really hard. Um, and then a couple years later went on to have our daughter, um, and, you know, lo and behold, after three pregnancies and, and two live births, we, I, I was dealing with stress incontinence, diastasis recti, all the residual stuff left over from my hip surgery that still hadn't been resolved and, um, even some pelvic organ prolapse. And so, you know, I did the things that I taught other people to do. And it wasn't easy to go back to running. I was still having issues. And um, it, again, I was kind of faced with if I keep, you know, if I accept that this is all there is, then maybe I can't keep running or I can't do things with that wasn't okay. So then I had to kind of look myself in the eye and be like, all right, well, what if what you were doing wasn't enough? what if you need to find a different way? And I knew that I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't be the only person to feel that way. And um, another Aussie physio, uh, Anthony Lowe, I had taken a, a female athlete course from him when he came in the States. Um, that was probably six years ago. And um, it was a nice opportunity for me to just kind of be like, wait a second, there may be another way to do things. Um, and started doing weightlifting and CrossFit, which was great for my hip, but adding load. Um, and really just started to get me stronger, which is a lot of what was going on. And so a lot of those areas, running, CrossFit, those things, weightlifting, anything impact was really sort of a no-no um, for postpartum. And so now I live in a very, very active, I think we're the most active city in the United States. And you're going to have a lot of type A women that aren't going to take no for an answer. And apparently I'm one of them. So the solution <laughs> was to find another way. And so that's really been the focus of, of my practice. So um, my kids, I say, have taught me far more than PT school ever did. Um, but uh, if it weren't for them, uh, I wouldn't have experienced this stuff. But again, I think understanding and going through it makes me that much more passionate about finding solutions for other moms. So that's yeah. the, the long and the short of the last 23 years. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, it's good to, I guess, have two passions to come together. You've got the, 
the postpartum, the pelvic health sort of stuff, but then also the active population, like you being a runner yourself and a lot of your content and your podcast is sort of, you know, addressing like the fit and healthy or encouraging people to get fit and healthy and stay strong. And yeah. I did have um, Emma Brockwell on the podcast before. Oh, I love Emma. She's fantastic. She was great. And she was recommending, you know, people to stay active when they are pregnant for as long as they, they can, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but every circumstance is quite unique, you know, yes. like you would have maybe pain or dysfunction in some part of that pregnancy. Some people don't. And yep. I guess when it comes, most of my conversation was her with her was around activity during the pregnancy. I know today right. we're going to talk about postpartum and that sort of stuff, but do you see that, uh, variability the individuality between pregnancies like you could do a lot uh you could do be as proactive as you can or preventative with a lot of measures but some people just for some whatever reason just end up with pain a bit earlier in the pregnancy some a bit later and some not at all yeah i i wish there was an easier way to predict to be quite honest with you i mean there's certain predictors it's it's you know if you have musculoskeletal issues prior to getting pregnant, then some of those, you know, kind of show themselves during, um, I, I personally had some SI issues before related to, uh, a work incident, but, um, really had a ton of symphysis pubis issues that during both pregnancies. And so I hadn't seen that coming. And so sometimes you have women that they can get all the way to their third trimester and then they start to have issues more because of the weight. Some women, they have issues right in that first trimester because of hormones. So sometimes we can kind of understand the driver depending on when it is or, you know, if they've had past injury or or things like that, but it's so hard to predict. Or you might have a mom that they thought they did everything just right. They ran all the way through and then they have a delivery they didn't expect because maybe they didn't realize they had some muscles in the pelvic floor that maybe weren't relaxing so it was harder for the baby to drop or or something along those lines they end up pushing for longer than they had planned or have interventions that they hadn't planned and then they had this perfect pregnancy that kind of blows up in their face and they're not prepared at all for the outcomes on the other side and I, I almost think that one's harder because mm. they assumed that because they did everything right and they literally ran up to that last moment that that ensures that they're not going to have issues. And that's where I so appreciate so many of um, the female pro athletes that are coming out now and talking about what their experiences were in pregnancy and postpartum. And, and most of the postpartum women, they're talking about, you know, we think thought that we could just get right back in like after an injury because that's the rehab they're used to it's not even remotely close and you can't find people that are willing to talk about it and I'm so thankful that these women are are being courageous enough to share their stories because we don't have predictors right now we don't have a way to 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 understand okay well if a then b it's just not that simple there's far too many variables Yeah. And at least it helps people with expectations as well, or just knowing that there's a lot of variability out there and someone that they know could have had a a swift return and theirs is just a little bit more delayed and they sort of think they've done something wrong, which they actually haven't. It's just the the variability of it all. In regards to postpartum return to running guidelines, 
Mm -hmm. uh, you did say that there's not, we don't have much definitive predictors, um, but right. in a general sense, is there some guidelines that people can follow? So, I mean, the, the first thing I can point to is, is obviously Emma and Grunya and Tom's work. Um, in 2019, they came out with these basic guidelines and we really had nothing to go off of. And really, it's just an extrapolation of, you know, what was out there that had any semblance of relationship to return to run and conversations I've, I've had with them, um, you know, since then is, is you know, we, we've got to have a starting point and we're going to have variants um, on the spectrum. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to other professionals about, you know, when should we be screening, um, you know, balance? When should we be screening strength? When should we be screening readiness for impact? Because that's essentially the, the areas that we're looking at. And again, a lot of this information, it, at least in what was interesting is I was looking at this almost independently. And I think probably a lot of people were at the same time. And then we started to kind of come to this stuff around the same time. It's like, you're pulling from, you know, uh, Achilles tendinopathy literature, anything that that's orthopedic, that's like return to impact. How can we assess that? Um, because return to run isn't just the pelvic floor. It's what is going on with the hip? What's happened to the ankle? Is there what's going on with the vestibular system? There's a, there's so many systems and hormones and stuff that are involved in postpartum, and so I may have a mom that comes to me and she's four weeks postpartum, and she's already started to run, but she's coming because she has issues. Um, I may screen her then because I need to find where the deficits are. I may not even tell her not. I may tell her not to run because she's doing it more for mental health. And if, she, if I say to her, no, you can't run anymore, she's going to go somewhere else and keep doing what she's doing anyway. And so we're going to try and keep things in the track. Or I might have somebody that doesn't come till 12 weeks and we need to start doing strengthening. I'll screen them to find the deficits, but we may not start running for another couple months. Like that's the beauty of using a screening tool is it just gives us a sense of where we are but it's also, I think, in the context of asking additional questions. Um, and that's where I think being a mom, you, you kind of have the leg up. Like, just to ask a new mom how they're sleeping, their first answer is going to be, well, you know, I had a new baby. I'm like, yes, I know that. But now tell me, you know, how many hours of sleep are you getting at a time? Are you, is it at night? Is it during the day? Um, who's taking shifts? How's the nursing going? Are you trying to lose weight? You know, are we concerned about red S um, because the nutrition's off and maybe they're over-exercising and not getting, you know, what they need? Um, if they're trying to, to get more of a supply and they're having supply issues or they're stressed out or, um, I have a client, she's, she's trying to, to hop back and do macros again. And it was really interesting. Her, her eight week old was starting to get blood in his stool, which is very common when you're trying to figure out digestion initially in those first couple of weeks, but not as common, you know, later on. And she had, you know, tried to go back and pile on her protein again. I'm just those little things that just trying to get back to ourselves, um, can it can impact the baby, which turns around and affects us again. And so it's not just these basic physiological screening, it's what's going on with hormones, what's going on with sleep, what's going on with nutrition, all of these things that when you have gone through it, you understand it in such a primal and visceral way <laughs> that it's very different than just checking the box on paper. And you really want to understand how that mom really is doing. Because again, I might okay return to run if 
the, the, the choice is if I say no, she's going to do it anyway and hurt herself, or she's going to do something that, that might impact her mental health. So there really is so many factors that we're thinking about as far as getting that readiness and, and, and seeing how things go. With the readiness in mind, so mm-hmm. if there's no major complications, no pain, uh, they're sleeping okay, um, there's no real signs that they shouldn't be running. And then they mm-hmm. come to you and they haven't started running yet, but they're saying, okay, I'm starting to think about it. Yeah. Um, would there be any particular tests that you would do? You did mention the screening alongside every other questioning that you would, you'd go right. through, but are there any like, you know, certain tests that someone can increase their confidence that maybe a, a return to run is achievable? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a, a version of the readiness tests. And again, it's about like we're, we're screening across 10 things. So um, again, it's it's looking at single legs balance. It's looking at hopping. Um, it's looking at running in place. It's looking at like a plank or a wall set or things like that. And I, I, I like doing the gamut of things because it's either going to do one of two things. It's either going to give you confidence that, okay, I am a little bit stronger than I think, or I've got a better balance, or I, I can handle this better than I think, or gosh, I've got some work to do. And so sometimes we use the screening um, tools as their exercises. Um, if they don't have already have programs adjunct to running that they're doing, um, and, and just give them a place to start with that. And I think it can be incredible, incredibly helpful to just um, I don't know, just if you have these fears that, gosh, you know, I'm worried about having leakage or my friend had leakage, or I don't want to have that to just try a couple of these things, not necessarily because if you can hop on one leg, you might be symptom free running. Sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes I might have people that don't pass the screen, but they can go run a minute and it's just fine. Um, again, I just think it's a, a tool to be able to say, here's a couple things that give us a good sense that you're probably going to be okay. But the other thing I like to do too is very, very different than like a couch to 5k is undershoot my dosing as far as return to run. So a lot of people, they'll start, oh, if I do a one minute run, one minute walk, that should be fine. It's not a lot. But when you look at that over a 20 minute period, that's a lot of running. Um, and so what I, I tell moms, I said, look, I always want to undershoot. I always want to build confidence. So we may have them do the exact same ratio. We may start with like 30 seconds or a minute run, just conversational pace, and then say a four minute walk. We'll do that four times. So we're, we're building up over time, just time under gravity. But I may have them do that two or three different sessions to build confidence because if something doesn't go well, you're going to freak out. And so we want to make sure that if we change a variable, we know that we're good. And so that's one thing that I I do do quite differently, I think, than a lot of return to run programs is we want to underdose. So we build that confidence. We're also building that foundation because there's nothing worse than a mom that thinks that she's all set to go. And then you wet your pants the first time or you feel like a tampon's falling out or you have a lot of pain. It's hard to come back from that. It's terrifying. You you run a different way. You hold things a different way. So if we can outsmart the system by just slowly kind of underdosing and building back up over a longer period of time, that's going to be more beneficial in the long run. Well said. Is there a certain time frame where, let's just say postpartum, everything, you know, from symptom wise, everything seems to be okay. 
is there a point where you would say, okay, we need to wait a certain amount of weeks postpartum before you even start an assessment? Is there mm-hmm. just general guidelines on uh, a time frame? You know, I mean, we go back to basic soft tissue healing concepts. I mean, probably the one I'm most conservative with is C-section because essentially it's a major abdominal surgery. You're gutted like a fish. I've gone through it twice. I wouldn't recommend it if you have a choice, but it's it's not a delicate surgery. There's a, a lot of tugging and pulling and multiple layers of um, things being stitched back, lots of anesthesia you've got to deal with and constipation and pain medications, and it's just not fun. And so with that, you know, when we get to that six-week clearance mark, um, we know that generally the scar is not going to be torn open or, you know, general activity. Moms tend to be more confident at that point. So we usually can start basic exercises um, a little bit before then, um, but typically I wouldn't necessarily start running before then. That's not to say that I haven't had clients start. Um, I tend to want to pull them back a little bit, but again, I mean, there, there's so much that we don't know. If you have somebody that, that they're going to go back and do these things soon and they don't understand basic soft tissue healing principles, ideally, um, if something bad happens, they'll st- they'll stop. Um, but again, like to, the six week mark, I it, it's a suggestion. I think more for exercise. I tend to stick with it a little bit more to start between six and twelve. Just again, depending on what those those foundational baselines are. But again, you you always have to go back to just baseline soft tissue healing concepts. Like I can't make time go any faster. So if we can kind of make sure that that you're not gonna fly open from the center and that would be a really nice thing so <laughs> and what about uh like a nap just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury the sign up link is in the show notes so fill in your details and i'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow delivery would that change the time frames at all you know again it depends if they've had a lot of tearing if they've had a fourth degree tear which basically is vagina to rectum also not fun um that's also again we're, we're going to be dealing with soft tissue healing principles so um it, it, it's one of those things that we want to symptoms are important whether they're having pain or discomfort or that sort of thing but we we you can't change. You can't make that time frame go faster. You can't make healing go faster. But that's one of those things that if you go too fast, it definitely prolongs that return. So um, if if there's not too much tearing, if there's been a small tear or you know things like that, we don't worry too much. But usually the larger tears. But again, typically with the larger tears, they're going to be more likely to have symptoms of leakage or prolapse or things like that. So that conversation usually doesn't come up. Okay, and. If someone comes in for an assessment, would there be any symptoms that would lead you to suspect, no, you're not ready for any type of running, you need to do something else instead? Is there any signs, symptoms, pain, um, presentation that you might suspect yeah. that's not ready? Well, usually, I, the other criteria that, that I didn't mention was um, walking is a great first exercise when it gets you out of the house, but there's a lot of opportunities to vary it up and to modify. So... Um, we talk about being able to walk either independently or pushing a stroller. I want them to be able to walk up to 40 minutes symptom-free, or if they're doing some sort of carrier, I want them to have at least 30, 35 minutes tolerating a carrier 
without any symptoms. And so usually if they're able to do that, we can have the conversation about readiness to run. If they're not doing those things yet, chances are there's symptoms that are preventing them from doing it. So that tends to be a nice screening, but also a nice foundation builder. And I guess say like walking uphill would might actually help assess whether, you know, the propulsion calf Achilles foot can tolerate it, but also like walking downhill and sort of increasing the ground reaction force a little bit might help create, see what the stability and the pelvic floor control and all that sort of thing is like. So maybe yep. there are a few precursors to see if someone is ready to start tolerating. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And again, obviously it depends on, on where people live and what they have access to. Usually we recommend starting, you know, level um, even surface surfaces, so paved surfaces. And obviously if you have a stroller, that's a, a, um, a little bit easier. Um, sometimes women with prolapse and leakage don't do well going down, especially if they have a stroller or a pram because they're trying to hold it back. And so it increases pressure. Sometimes they, they have problems going up because they're not close enough to the stroller to push. And so physics um, comes and plays a role. And so sometimes we can tweak those and make it easier just by modifying how they do it. But again, it's another opportunity with hills up and down, um, even uneven surfaces to just introduce a different variable to see if there's some readiness there, just like you would do the same thing as far as um, starting to do that initial dosing with running. I, ideally, I would want them to do flat surfaces before we started to do trails or uphills or downhills or things like that. Okay. And signs of, say, pain, if there's any like pelvic pain or if there's mm -hmm. any incontinence or any of those sort of signs before running, would you say you're not ready? Let's work on other things before building up or they it, maybe some people can get away with it. it, it I think it, it's situation dependent because um, I might have somebody that uh, leakage, for example, maybe they only leak uh, when they're sneezing a lot because of allergies. Um, so that might be just this very specific situation. Um, if they're having usually prolapse symptoms, so that's that heaviness or feeling like something's dangling, ideally you want your daily activities to be pretty symptom-free before, and, and quite honestly, again, it's, it's more self-limiting. Um, women aren't, they're too scared to run if they're feeling those sorts of feelings just on a daily basis. I think women are more apt to start running on their own, ignoring leakage, because culturally and society wise, like we've just been taught throw a pad on and don't worry about it. Um, and so here, at least in the States, like I, I see a lot of women that will come for diastasis recti, which is abdominal separation, which most people don't have. They think they do and they don't. Um, they'll come for that. That's an easy fix. We'll talk about coning and doming and then they'll mention, oh, well, when I run, I have leakage. I'm like, that. that's why we should be talking. So it's, I, I, it's having leakage typically with running, I think there's far more women who have it that don't try and get it addressed even years out. Um, whereas I think pelvic organ prolapse, it's something that just, it feels so odd and feels so foreign and you don't really want to run when you have it. Um, so I, it, I think daily activities and symptoms with that, it's, that's going to be the barrier to even starting. Yeah. And it's probably worth mentioning for those who aren't familiar, but if they are demonstrating those symptoms, seeking mm -hmm. help from a 
um, pelvic health professional, pelvic mm-hmm. health PT uh, to, I guess, get them on the right path, doing some strengthening or doing some functional retraining and those sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, there was a very, very long time, probably up until the last mm, five to six years that with leakage with running, we were very, very focused on pelvic floor muscles that were underactive. So they needed training or, or strengthening. And I um, here in the States, we talk about them as kegels a lot. We need to come up with a better name. But mm-hmm. um, it, it things have shifted and our understanding has shifted a bit now that we're, we're considering more overactivity or higher tone pelvic floor, meaning that if you have muscles that are on more than they should be, ideally the, the job of those muscles is with, you know, anticipation of impact, there's, they should contract a little bit more to counter the pressure um, so that you're not leaking or, you know, having organs, you know, move out of the body. What we've started to realize is we do have clients that, that and women that the muscles are too active. And so when we're asking them to give more, there's no more to give. And so then you end up with leakage or what I've also been considering probably the last, and I think we're seeing this more and more the last year or two is that's probably the case with pelvic organ prolapse as well. If you're feeling an organ fall out, your tendency is going to be to want to hold that back in. Just like if you're leaking, that tendency is going to be to want to hold it in. So um, I think the most important thing as far as rehab goes is not to assume that a pelvic floor contraction or strengthening is the right solution. You have to take a step back and say, why am I having these symptoms? Because you can have symptoms and one why can be overactivity and one why can be underactivity. And if you try and address the, the, the too much activity or the too much tone with strengthening, it's not going to work or it's going to make things worse. Um, and so I think going back to the the etiology or the why or the drive behind that, now that we kind of have a choice, I think that's the most important thing in, in when you're working with a provider is to make sure you get that why in that very, very first visit. So that's gonna dictate your plan forward. Yeah, so important to have a health professional to determine the difference because some people might think, oh, I'm just need more strength and mm-hmm. they might be doing the total opposite of what might be helpful. Yep. Well, even I, I, a lot of what my clinical practice is, is working with um, women who've seen other providers, so other physios. Um, and so unfortunately, a lot of standard of practice is still pelvic floor muscle training or strengthening. So um, we, we still have a ways to go in getting that standard across the board, or at least here in the States we do. Um, so it's, it's, it's coming. Um, I hope it, it, I think it's getting out more because of social media. I, I have a lot more women that are coming in educated and, or they're DMing me and saying, okay, I went to my first visit. All they wanted me to do was pelvic floor contractions. I actually think I have overactivity. This is why, how do I find somebody that's going to, you know, treat me in the right direction? So I, I do mm. think the public is getting, getting better educated, which helps a lot. You mentioned before about sleep and nutrition, like maybe having some energy deficits or Mm -hmm. some nutritional deficit that might lead to someone, I guess, hindering their return back to activity or hindering, um, you know, just general function. Are there any Mm -hmm. signs and symptoms or are there any things that might appear that suspect, okay, maybe we need to address your nutrition or maybe we need to address sleep. Um, any signs? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I think when you have a newborn is, um, and I experienced this with my oldest, I will never forget this. When you, when your newborn baby has bloody mucousy stool and they're in pain, it is the most excruciating feeling. You're trying to figure out what you did because the only way he got that food was from me. And so you will have moms tear their diets apart. They will leave out soy. They will leave out dairy. They will leave out, for me, I figured out it was Greek yogurt. It was too much protein because they have these tiny little, you know, digestive systems that are still immature. And so the very, very first thing is lots of times if you have a mom who's breastfeeding, their nutrition is not dependent on their needs. Their nutrition is dependent on, you know, is the baby's stool okay? Is, is, you know, what's going on with them? And so I think that's, that can be the initial first shock for moms that, um, you know, we can't eat what we want. We can't do what we want necessarily because it impacts this other human in a very, very visible way. And so um, I think that that's the first piece. But again, if we're trying to lose the baby weight or over-exercise or work on a calorie deficit, you can't go on a calorie de deficit and then also produce enough milk for a small human. So again, I'll ask about milk production. Is the baby getting enough? Are you having supplement issues? See if you can correlate the stories with, um, with if they tell you they're trying to modify their diet or they're trying to lose weight with what's happening um, with their milk supply. That can be um, a really important uh, indicator. Um, other things that come up, um, signs of stress fracture. And there was... Um, you know, I've heard stories and, and talked to clients about how they'll have, you know, this, you know, sacral pain or, you know, it's SI pain that doesn't resolve and it gets worse and worse and come to find out they do have some underlying stress fractures. And I think red S is something that we think about in the context of athletes. Um, I think it's a very important um, conversation to have when you consider moms working on nutrition deficit if they're, you know, again, if they're trying to lose weight or trying to hit macros or, or do something different or, or meet their nutrition needs of their, their baby, um, if their sleep isn't where it's supposed to be. So we, we talk about, you know, total hours, but how much are you getting it and what bites. Um, uh, tracking HRV, I think, is incredibly helpful too. Everybody's got a wearable now. So that's a really easy way. I, I wear a whoop just to make sure that I'm not crazy. I'm like, are we are we red, yellow, or green today? Like those <laughs> sorts of things are really easy ways just to kind of not scare people, but just find out like what what's what's your standard? Where are things right now? Are you having any pain that could sound like a stress fracture? Are you setting yourself up for that because you're exercising every day, not getting enough sleep and, you know, functioning on calorie deficit? Those sorts of things. Um, it, but again, I think a lot of it comes back to, um, you know, moms th thinking that, you know, within a certain period of time postpartum, they should look a certain way or fit into their genes in a certain way and are frustrated that what their body is doing or they gain too much weight. I hear that one all the time. I think the idea of, you know, only gaining 25 pounds with a baby is ridiculous. Like I, I think I was 40 up with my son, it was 60 with my daughter, but we had a miscarriage in between. So there was some of that was, was that weight, but 
you know, it, it, these expectations that you shouldn't gain any weight when you have gigantic babies, like that just doesn't make sense either. So yeah. it, there's a lot of variables, but again, listening to moms and what their biases are and what they're, you know, um, just small little under your breath com comments like, oh, well, you know, I, I can't fit into my jeans or it was supposed to be this or just, you know, just little offhanded comments usually will help point me in the direction of where their mindset was and, and concerns that we might need to, to look into. Great. And for those who aren't familiar with the red S relative energy deficiency, they're talking about, you know, when you exercise or when you have to function, you need to utilize a certain amount of nutrition and that nutrition comes from what you eat. And if there's a mismatch there, if yep. you're not feeding your body enough that it needs to produce, then it's going to have to extract resources elsewhere. And so it does it from say the bones, it'll extract the minerals and what it needs to produce energy. And yes, like I said, that conversation's usually reserved for athletes who might be wanting to lose weight and training like high amounts and trying to lose weight. So decreasing their overall nutritional intake. But when it comes to postpartum and pregnancy and stuff, you're also needing the nutrients for a second yep. person. And so yes. that deficit can still might be in an imbalance there. So very yeah. important that people recognize that stage of life and making sure those nutritional intakes um, well balanced. Absolutely. And if someone's unable to run, mm -hmm. do you have any favorite go-to other exercises? You know, you mentioned walking, um, if they can tolerate walking, uh, yeah. anything else that someone else can go to? You know, I mean, it sounds stupid, but the first question I have is what do you enjoy doing? Um, because there's nothing worse than telling a runner to go swim. Because um, mm -hmm. it's not the same thing. It never will be the same thing. You won't get the same feeling. Um, I, I start with that because one of the things that gets lost with moms is trying to find their identity and reconnect with who they were. Um, now that you have this small child leaching all of your energy and, and milk and all this stuff and everything is about the baby and so on. And so um, I, a lot of things that I try and encourage if they aren't able to run just yet is, you know, group exercise class where they can be with a community, whether it's indoors or outdoors or, or, or things that they can be a part of. Um, or, you know, if they have friends, what do their friends enjoy doing? Like that community part, especially if you're missing your running community, that can be incredibly helpful. So quite honestly, for me, it's not so much what they do, but how they do it. And if, um, if it's something they enjoy, because again, if, if I tell you to go do something that you hate doing, you're not going to do it and you're not going to listen to me. So um, there's so much to be said for, okay, we, we're not going to run right now, but what can we find to do so that you still get some of that stuff um, that, that make you want to run in the first place? So finding that community, that support, that sort of thing. So it's it's a little bit, I, I kind of bypassed your, your question a little bit, but quite honestly, that's, that's it. I'm not going to tell you to do things that you're A, not going to do and B, you're going to hate. Yeah. I do the same with running related injuries. When someone says, well, should I swim? I say, well, do you like swimming? Right, and exactly. <laughs> see what they say. Um, in the US, is there many like mums and bubs fitness classes where people can take their newborns and do some fitness exercise and get in amongst that type of community as well? We do. We're actually, again, very, very fortunate in this area. And obviously, you know, COVID um, affected a lot of it, but 
Um, we have a lot of actually outdoor classes. Um, we have a group in this area called uh, SLAM, so Sweat Like a Mother. Um, and a lot of it actually for um, the groups here in the States, uh, it's a lot of military families. So what's great is they move every couple of years, they can find the SLAM group in that town they have again it's that community um military families they're used to you know dropping down not knowing anybody and you know making a life for their families and things like that and so um i think those communities like that where they'll go to a local park bring the kids along in the stroller they might do you know um some lightweights or you know start to introduce some things and, and fortunately around here we have some great groups that um have actually we've done some training together so they can pull some women aside to do some quick screening to see if they're ready to do some of the jogging in the sessions or things like that so that's incredibly um helpful we also have um in this area, a lot of local kind of um, yoga and Pilates studios that will do mommy and me. I did that with my my oldest. And again, that's one of the, that's where you meet a lot of your first mom friends. Um, and we still have mom friends that, you know, we ski with our, our boys are a week apart. Our daughters are six months apart and we go out and ski with them a couple times in the winter and we'll see them in the summer. And they're our oldest, you know, mom friends. Um, <laughs> there's, there's such... I think an important aspect of just getting out of the house. You may not be actually doing exercise. You may be nursing. You may be, you know, soothing a crying baby, but feeling like you put your clothes on that day, you might've even showered before you went out and being out with other moms that are kind of going through the same thing you are. So again, beyond just the physical aspects of it, it's, it's getting out, connecting and finding a new community, but also finding a little bit of yourself again. When I was working in private practice, we did have a mums and bubs fitness class and I didn't take many of them, but the ones that I did, the, the mums would turn up and a lot of times they just chat. They just oh, yeah. talk amongst themselves and they hardly oh, yeah. exercise. And I'm the mm -hmm. ones like, take these weights, do this, do that. They <laughs> You're just, just getting in the way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I missed the memo. I missed um, the purpose, the real purpose of them being there. Well, let, let, I, I, I let you in on this secret. No, I, I, I will say that the, when, when you have the, the kids that are a little bit older and they can just sit contently in the stroller or something like that, I think that's easier. When, the, when they're fresh and new and you are fresh and new, every little snort that comes out of their mouth you're paying attention so mm. if you can be there and talk to another human that that's helpful <laughs> very true we mentioned at the start the variability of you know recovery or just symptoms during pregnancy mm -hmm. and you could do everything right and for whatever reason you know something's happened to create a few setbacks with that said uh if someone was just say pregnant now and has the idea to return back to running postpartum. Is there some checklist that you think they should be doing to mm -hmm. help their success, help their return to running on the, like knowing in the back of their mind that some things can just right. be unforeseen, unpredictable and delay things. But um, yeah, what can we do to help? So I think you hit on the first one right there is to kind of just adopt that flexibility mindset. Um, I, I joke that you lose control the second you conceive, um, that you really aren't in control anymore. And I think the sooner um, you kind of wrap your head around that, it makes the rest of it a little bit easier. I think the second is to... Um, set up a team around you in advance that you trust 
um, that understand and get you and you know no matter what comes they're going to advocate for you because again you you don't know what could come up but um we have moms now that are are trying to educate themselves so much that like i i they they call me to make an appointment when they're six weeks pregnant I'm like let's let's wait till we're we're viable um but at least to start to have the conversations about um, what might symptoms be during pregnancy that might make us want to modify workouts or might make us want to um, change our running or things like that? What might we want to start to think about as far as um, delivery mode, uh, how to relax the pelvic floor? Lots of times runners or women who run a lot may have more overactivity and difficulty relaxing. So that's something to, to pay attention to. But then I also love to talk with moms about making sure that we have a postpartum visit scheduled um, usually within two to four weeks of the due date. So no matter what happens, no matter if they go early or late, they've got me basically on speed dial. And this is this is separate from the physicians, the, the OBGYNs check, because I feel like there's so many things, especially the first time around, that you have questions about and you you want to navigate and the sooner we can get through that and get you feeling like you've got a handle on it the sooner you can start to look ahead to okay let me think about you know exercising and starting to move again and, and building that foundation back so i i think having you know surrounding people you're surrounding yourself with people that you trust that you know get where you want to go and are going to help you do it in a very kind of intentional methodical way but are flexible enough that whatever comes, they can kind of handle it or they've got a resource who can. I That I can't recommend enough. Even if it's just, we meet once and I'm on speed dial if something comes up or I am that person that you can email me anytime between now and when you deliver that you've got a question, you're not feeling like you're stuck. You're feeling like you've got some good solid information and then we get right on top of things. We don't let things kind of snowball on the other side. We, we get the answers and, and move you forward. So. Um, that's probably what I can recommend the most. Is it, it, it's not as simple as, okay, if during pregnancy, if you can run and you do maintain your running further into that pregnancy, um, that's going to help you return to running postpartum or building up strength or, you know, making sure that... Yeah, strong legs, <laughs> strong core, strong. No. I I wish, I wish. I think the thing that we don't realize, um, and I think this is the hardest thing for moms to understand, is, um, you know, if you're active during pregnancy, you feel you're like, oh, I'm really strong, I'm invisible, and then you get to the other side, and I have yet to meet a mom in 23 years say, wow, you know, I feel so strong coming out of delivery because you have a completely foreign body things are in a completely different place different zip code and it, it's you might have been strong with everything the way that it was there but this is you're you're in a completely different situation and so what we do know from the research and this is you know it, it helpful yes sort of no is that if you are active it should be beneficial to a healthy fetus um, great but I think that also can be incredibly challenging information. What if you are not able to be active because of like placenta previa or you've got, you know, some other medical issue 
um, that's preventing you from being active, does that mean that you are not going to have a healthy baby? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And so I think that's the difficulty in kind of translating some of this information and some of the messaging of you want to be as active as possible, because we don't necessarily have data to say that if you are not active, you are going to have an unhealthy baby. Um, I think from a mental health perspective, if you are active before pregnancy, it's going to behoove you to stay active as much as you can during pregnancy so you can, you know, kind of ideally get back to that sooner. But again, one, an active pregnancy does not equate to an active postpartum. It just, it's just honestly not that simple. There's too many variables that it can occur in the delivery room. Um, just things that we can't control. And that's, I think, again, you, you lose control to some degree the second you conceive. The sooner you wrap mm. your head around that and, and not laminate your birth plan, the better. <laughs> I think that's reassuring in some ways for people if they are going through a, a hassle that you know they didn't really predict postpartum. Yeah. I think just knowing that the unpredictability is normal is reassuring yeah. for people. And you just need to be proactive with what you're presented with, I guess. It's um, you can yeah. roll the dice and then whatever that, whatever lands, that's, you know, you just need to be proactive along that and with a healthy mindset, being educated about the right things. And um, speaking about the education side, I do have, I want to address if there are any myths yeah. and misconceptions hmm. about these things. I had the pelvic floor misconceptions and you've already addressed that potentially people could be strengthening an overactive pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. uh, that's key. Are there any others on when it comes to pelvic floor that you hear? Any common misconceptions? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, again, the, the big one in pregnancy is, you know, if, if you don't do kegels, you're you know, you're going to be in trouble or you, I, I have so many women that come and apologize because they didn't do their kegels either during pregnancy or after because they either forgot or they did them and they couldn't really feel them or they did them and it made things worse. Or, um, this idea that getting a strong pelvic floor going into, you know, delivery, and that's the only important thing. It's just not true. Um, and so it's, it, it it's one of those things that, you know, when women apologize and say, oh gosh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I didn't do my pelvic floor contractions, but they have overactivity. I tell them, I'm like, actually, that's a, I'm so glad. I'm glad you didn't because it probably would have made things worse. Um, so again, I think women need to understand that actually one of the most important things to, with delivery is the, the uterus contracts, the pelvic floor has to relax and open up. Um, and so relaxing the pelvic floor and understanding what that feels like and when understanding how you can kind of practice that and hip opening and things like that, that I think is one of the most probably detrimental myths. If people go in and think, oh gosh, I have a strong pelvic floor. I did all my kegels. Um, and then actually wound up with more overactivity, which led to, you know, interventions or things because the baby didn't rock, drop or, or whatever. That's probably one of the most detrimental ones. Um, yeah, and I, I again, I think that along those same lines that the pelvic floor contraction is the solution for every issue, and it's just not. It's just not. Um, we're far too complex for that. 
Um, and I think people worry too, gosh, if I can't get my pelvic floor, let's, let's say they, they truly cannot contract their pelvic floor. Let's say that they truly have weakness, that they had um, tearing and that they're having difficulty finding it. They may not even have leakage. That's, that's the thing that people don't understand is, is we have this oversimplified view of what continence is and that it's only the pelvic floor that's responsible for continence. And that's just not true too. I mean, we're, we're again, we're far too complex. We've got a lot of layers in play so that if one layer goes down, we've got multiple things to, to back it up. And so I think the, the more we can kind of understand the complexity of our, our kind of biology is, a, is there and it's a good thing. We've got lots of backup systems. Um, again, not to worry so much about the contraction piece, but to um, take a step back and get a good understanding of, okay, is it my muscles are too active or they're not active enough? And then I can go from there because it could very much be one or the other. Mm. You mentioned um, the diastasis recti, which is just like the separation of, yep. I guess, down the middle of your, your abdominals. Mm -hmm. And you said that a lot of people think they have it, but they yes. don't. What, what did you mean by that? So one of the biggest issues postpartum is uh, women not happy with the aesthetics of their body. And um, when you are Googling, that's the one medical thing that comes up when you're talking about abdomen that you can kind of make a connection to. And so I think people are looking for solutions for the mummy tummy or why they're poochy, or it's, it's usually an aesthetic reason. Um, but the fact is 100% of women have that separation. So we have the linea alba, we have our six pack kind of on either side here. And to make room for a growing fetus, those abdominals have to stretch and that linea alba is meant to kind of change and separate. So that's the first kind of thing that people don't understand is that 100% of women have it. And what we still don't know why is why some women, the collagen kind of snaps right back and things look exactly as they should and mom can walk out in her pre-pregnancy genes. And then there's some of us that have to send our mother-in-law to Target to get new underwear because we can't fit our legs through the holes and you know it's just not big enough and so on uh, and so there's that variance and that lack of understanding of why our body isn't doing what we thought it would be and this is the one medical thing that we can kind of um, sort of point to except for that's not it <laughs> so typically the understanding in the research with um, uh, diastasis is there was a long time about focused on the gap and then a couple of different research groups um, figured out that actually when you engage the deep abdominals, which is what the treatment was for a while, um, it actually opens the gap a little bit. And so people that the, the group that was very anti-gap said no more abdominal exercises and then the other group said, well, wait, what are we what are we thinking here? And so what they realized was by opening the gap slightly, it tensioned that linea alba, making it a little bit easier to create tension and translate um, forces across. And so now we're looking at more, instead of just the width, we're looking at the depth. So are you able to tension that linea alba? Are you able to engage the muscles sufficiently so it tensions that and you can generate forces across? So um, usually that's a really easy thing to teach somebody, especially with real-time ultrasound imaging, where they can look at it, they can see it, we can play with breast strategies to find how to tension it, easy, easy fix. Um, but 
aesthetics are not as easy of a fix. So where where I live, I joke that, you know, 98% of women here think that they have it. And really, it's only 2% that that do. Um, but again, the, the, the difficulty there is there's so many myths about things you should not do. You should not do crunches. You should not do planks. You should not, you know, do, do squats or things like that. When the fact of the matter is, how are you going to get out of bed at 2 a.m. when your baby's crying? You're not going to carefully roll to your side and get out of bed delicately at 2 a.m. when you're, you have a three month old, you're just not. And a squat is sitting down on the toilet. So, you know, all these things that we're told not to do are very functional things. And the fact of the matter is, if you avoid them, then you're going to get weaker, um, which is what happened to me. I diastasis after my second, did all the things that I was teaching other people to do, still felt incredibly weak, and then realized what I was avoiding was exactly what I should be doing. And so, um, again, a lot of it comes back to aesthetics or what they were told. You are broken. You have this separation that's not fixable. It's only surgery that can fix it when actually it's it's actually a pretty pretty quick addressing of uh, strategies of, of recruitment. The, I guess, correlation that I see is that when it, in relation to like a running related injury, sometimes mm-hmm. just Googling things and trying to research it yourself will just lead <laughs> you astray, lead you in the wrong direction with the wrong yep. information. And like yep. you've said a couple of times, we actually thought to be true X, Y, Z, but now with, now we have a better understanding and we actually think the opposite and yeah. all of that information that was once considered as good practice still floats around on, on online. And it's probably what some of the most popular search like things that pop up. It's really yes. hard to find the emerging accurate information. And so hence why someone like you is really important for postpartum and pregnancy and um, trying to maintain that fit active lifestyle. Yeah, it's I, I do a lot of work for our National Association and PR here in the States, the American Physical Therapy Association. And it, it I, I really have come to understand when you're working with media, they're looking for those quick hit, those quick sound bites, but they also want the headline. They want the thing that's going to, you know, give you three exercises that'll fix X, Y, and Z. Like that's what gets the the hits. That's what's gonna build the the the, the following. And it's really hard, like, it depends, isn't sexy, and it doesn't give a good headline. And so that's, you know, the blessing and the curse of um, social media is sometimes the the answer that's true isn't going to be, it, it's like, how do you make that something that somebody pays attention to and something that that's a little, you know, how are you going to get their attention, but give them good information? Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the stuff with diastasis, you know, moms thinking that they couldn't run because they thought things would spill out because their abs were, were separate. I'm like, that's just ridiculous. So, I mean, that's why I share my story of all the stuff that, you know, I, I never would have thought that I would talk about all the things that I've gone through, but, you know, I joke around, I'm like, I took my diastasis for a run today and we had a great time and, you know, it didn't bother me and it doesn't hurt and I'm able to control things and, and I can control it like a party trick at this point. <laughs> and so I think when you, are open about that and open about, hey, I used to think this too, and now I've changed my mind and this is what I'm able to do. And people see that, you know, you're not just, you know, blowing in the wind. It's like, oh, you, she does know what I'm talking about. She has felt this, those words that she's saying, yeah, that's what I've thought too, but she's doing something different now and she's doing better. I think 
mom's at 2 a.m. and it's dark and you're tired, you're looking for those stories. You're looking for that. And so for me to be able to provide education in a evidence-informed way, but also be very realistic about where the limits are and where we need more research, but clinically where we're making some improvements and changes and the patterns that we're seeing. Um, I, that's, that's how I can use my voice. And, and again, mm. it, it, it means that I've, you know, been open about it. Um, but I, I, I wish I'd had somebody that I could have related to. Yeah. Um, and you share so. it so well. It's Oh, thank the, you. So Carrie Pagliano is your handle on Instagram and that's yeah. mainly sort of where I reached out to you and yeah. you provide great information on that. You have your podcast, Active Mum Postpartum and any, any other, I guess, socials or any other directions people can go to if they want to learn more about you or, you know, just follow the information you're releasing. Sure. So uh, I, I try and keep everything simple. So my website is kerrypagliano.com. Um, I do have um, both professional facing and mom facing um, options that you can work with me online. So um, I, we actually just started our, our next cohort. Uh, it's called the Real Mom's Guide to Postpartum Return to Run. We have it for mom and a pro edition. So I help physios, coaches, trainers um, who are working with moms wanting to get back to running figure out how to problem solve some of these issues and get them back a little bit sooner because it's not something we have a lot of education in specifically. Um, and then also working with moms too to help them, you know, if they are having issues or I, I came, I grew up in a very rural area where the closest major medical system was 70 miles away. And so it wouldn't have been easy for me to access, you know, a physio on a regular basis. So I think the more that we can have options for moms to have online good quality education programs to help them figure out what's going on and help them kind of navigate their own process forward, I think that's so incredibly important. Because again, I don't want moms to think that just because they can't see a physio on a regular basis or work with a coach or a trainer that they're hopeless and they can't get back. So any way that, you know, and, and again, that's why I put so much free content out and, and tips and things like that, because it might take seven times for somebody to listen to something before they're ready to make a change or take a step forward. So, you know, whether they're, they're out for the free stuff or they're ready to, to step forward and, you know, do an online education course or work with me um, in person or virtually, there's just a lot of different ways. Um, and I want to make it that way so that people, wherever they are, um, feel like they've got a way to kind of get some help. Um, and it's not just limited to, to where you are in the world. Yeah, such a good idea and well done for helping the individual level and also the health professional level. It's um, covering a lot of tears, so excellent. And the um, Active Fit Mum Postpartum, Active Mum Postpartum podcast, um, yes. go check that out because I actually had Thank to listen you. to the your episode with um, Rich Willie, who's like one of my favorite people of all time. He's so and, good. <laughs> oh, talking about running myths, I'm like, this episode is for me and I learned so much, so for those who are listening, go check it out. Yeah, that was so much fun. And, and I, I don't think he knew what he was getting into, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, so, Carrie, thanks for coming on. This has been great and a, a, a great second addition to my conversation with Emma. I think this goes hand in hand really well. And it's a great resource to point people to who have questions. And then if they have more questions after listening to this episode, they can check you out on your website. And I, I 
want to thank you for delivering the right information to the right people and um, being so passionate about it and so relatable to that population because you share your experiences and you working as a mum and your kids and all that sort of stuff comes into it as well. So thanks for all you do and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.